Courtois, je m'appelle Fania Mont, je suis votre chef de cabine sur ce vol. L'ensemble de l'équipage a le plaisir de vous recevoir à bord de ce Boeing 737-800 Transavia, membre du groupe Air France KLM. Nous vous assurerons de votre sécurité et de votre durant ce vol à destination de Glasgow. Notre départ est maintenant proche, veuillez attacher et ajuster votre ceinture de sécurité. Nous vous souhaitons un agréable voyage. Hello, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a fortnightly series looking at unfamiliar places around the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. my friends, who shall remain nameless, but who we've mentioned a lot in this pod, told me recently that while she downloads all my episodes, she listens to my life updates immediately on release, but then saves the rest of the pod in her to-be-listened-to list. Given that my new newsletter, the first edition of which came out on the 2nd of June, apparently, is planned to have a brief summary of my podcast's intro in it, I wonder if that means that she'll stop doing even this. I was wondering what to do this podcast on, and after she said that, it kind of felt made sense to do an entire pod-length episode that's pretty much entirely a this-is-what-I've-been-doing-recently introduction, just so that she listens to it. Though, that being said, that she'll be mentioned a lot in this pod will hopefully mitigate that. We'll see. I jest, of course. In all seriousness, it actually makes sense to do a pod episode on my recent travels, partly because they're, well what I've been up to recently, but also partly because it's been my first journey out the UK since both the start of the Covid pandemic and since the rules and regulations surrounding Brexit have kicked in. Additionally, of course, having only just returned from it, I've not had much time to prepare on any other subject. Since I left for my trip on the Saturday after my podcast on Myth and Legends was released, I didn't really do anything out with that adventure. In all honesty, I can't even remember what I was doing in those couple of days. I know I had a session with my therapist where we were talking about dating as an aromantic asexual in a large but not huge city, but that is going to be a topic wandered into in my next mainline pod. Because it's Pride Month, and I'm sure I need to acknowledge that. I did dye my hair again on the... Uh, <clears throat> so, right, so I couldn't be mithered through it on the Friday, so I got up especially at 4.48am on the Saturday morning to prepare myself and pack before my morning flight. We'll come on to that in a minute. But, re hair dye. I dyed it at the start of the year, some flavour of purple, and while it worked, it wasn't quite ideal. Whether that was because of cheap hair dye or because of my lack of skill in doing it, who can say? Anyway, this time I took with another shade of purple, cyber purple. Let's be real, I chose it because of the name. And while it took better, it still generally made my hair much kind of generically darker rather than actually being purple. One of the goth shops in Glasgow suggested previously I'd get a better effect if I bleached it first, but honestly, do you really trust someone like me to bleach their own hair? Because I'm old enough to be going grey, I don't know how well a lighter colour might go on. Like, for example, I always said when I was younger that I, when I went grey I'd dye it sky blue, 
But that was before I knew how colours worked. I do it lime green, but I live in Glasgow. Purple, though. Purple is grand. Purple is asexuality. Purple is cool. Purple is power. It's just a shame most of it looks black. Which, though, still makes a statement, bearing in mind it is normally grey. As an aside, I often think about people who dye their hair. And it always strikes me as being two kinds. Those that try and dye it their natural colour, which demographically includes people like me. We even have a hair dye brand called Just For Men that tries to match middle-aged men with their younger-aged hair colour. And those who, uh, don't. Who are usually younger and female. So, essentially, given my preference for flannel shirts and my experimentations with crop tops, I have the vibe of a mid-30-something lesbian. This, however, is again a discussion topic for my next pod. All you need to know about my hair dye experimentations this time is that, as I say, I did it at 5am on a morning on which I had a flight at 11am from an airport in a different city. Because that's the way I roll. So anyway, about my trip. I spent nine nights in France. The ninth night was because it was cheaper for me to spend an extra night, the final Sunday night, in France and fly to Glasgow on the Monday than it was to leave France on the Sunday. The flight price was about £60. The overnight coach to London was £119 on its own. Or at least it was when I came to book it. But I'm going to rant about this later. Firstly, let me talk about the background to the trip. You'd like to think, because I write the pods in advance, I have everything structured and organised about how to talk about this trip. Ah, listener, oh listener, I don't know what to tell you, but right now it's Tuesday evening, I'm in a pub and I'm just writing what comes to mind as it comes to mind. This is not a blog post that I'm going to edit a couple of times before release. Be thankful I even spell-checked the document before I issue it as my transcript. Right. Many years ago, well, autumn 2019 anyway, my friend in France, Anne Law, suggested that we take a road trip around Ireland. Anne Law is... I don't know the best way to describe her that doesn't lead to many, oh yes, many unanswered questions, so let's just be open and honest and call her an ex-girlfriend. Although we... And I'm not going to say broke up because that requires organisation and decisions being made. And hello, do you know me? We stopped considering ourselves a couple, shall we say, probably around 2009. Anyway, Covid put our plans on hold, but at the start of this year, we tentatively suggested that we finally make it happen at the end of May. This being significant too, as it coincides with her birthday. If you know me well enough by now, you'll note I don't book things. I don't commit to things. This is partly because I like to be flexible, and partly because I'm scared of commitment, which might be why she's my ex-girlfriend. But that's a tale for my therapist. Anyway, as you may remember from a couple of podcasts ago, I went to London over Easter to meet with my similarly named friend, Laura. And while I was there, we discussed her future plans, including her desire to pop over to France to celebrate her birthday, which, coincidentally, is the same day as my friend Anne-Laure, although somewhat different years. And Laura was very keen that she not celebrate her birthday alone. And I, being me, am the person she felt most comfortable spending her birthday with. Aww. This initially stressed me out, as it meant I'd effectively booked myself to travel with friends in, and to, two different countries at the same time. And I'd have to upset one of them. Yes, I'm in therapy for my people-pleasing nature as well. Anyway, as it turns out, Anne Law assumed that we were going to Ireland at the end of May because that's what I wanted to do, and her birthday was pretty much an irrelevance. A mid-July trip was more convenient to her anyway. So that meant I was free to go with Laura 
to France, which was useful as her holiday was much more time dependent, not just specifically because it was her birthday, but also because she'd already booked her travel and at least one hotel at that point. By the time I came to book my trip, not quite last minute, but also more last minute than Laura might have wished, I had, well, issues. Laura's plan was to take a couple of days in Ancy, in the Alpine foothills, two nights, one full day in Lyon, for the eminently on-brand reason that she never had, and then three nights in Paris, because she likes Paris. I was tasked with finding a Parisian hotel, which was a snag, as uh, there weren't any. Literally. There were no hotels with twin-bedded rooms in the entirety of the Paris admin area. We're not the sort of friends who share a bed, even a double bed, but there were only a couple of those anyway. Paris was, according to Booking.com, 97% full for our visit. I have genuinely no idea why. The final stages of the French Open tennis were on, but that shouldn't have block-booked so many hotels. I can only assume it's a legacy of Covid and a desire to keep hotel occupancy less than full. Anyway, I managed to get a chain hotel, a Campanile for the record, just outside the Paris border, but equally a short stagger from a metro station. So that was all right. As intimated earlier too, I had problems with my own travel arrangements. Getting there was no issue. As she was starting in Annecy, Laura had booked a flight into Geneva in Switzerland, and it was a trivial matter for me to book a flight from Edinburgh to Geneva for the same day that was scheduled to arrive not long after her flight. But getting back to Glasgow was proving harder. Laura had booked a day coach to London, but the prices for that when I came to book were hideous, and Eurostar was uh, twice as expensive, and either way I'd still have to get to Glasgow from London. I ranted about this before in my recent pods on environmentalism, and how if we really want to save the planet, we have to make alternatives to air travel be competitive and convenient. Getting from Paris to Glasgow, evidently, is not. But what this did mean is, as I say, I ended up booking a cheap flight for the Monday, and Laura was leaving on the Sunday, and at that time I didn't book a hotel for the Sunday night. My thought had been, I know, I'll go somewhere interesting on the Sunday outside Paris and come back slowly on the Monday. The whole of northeastern France was my Easter. What I hadn't accounted for was that the Monday was a bank holiday. Ugh. But that was something for future me to worry about. In the short term was travel under Covid protocols. Now, according to the rules and regulations we'd been reading, France required proof on arrival of vaccination for Covid. As you might know, my vaccination history is complicated by the fact that I had my first two in England and my booster in Scotland, and the UK's NHS system evidently isn't national. Proof of the booster was fine. That's an easily downloadable document from the Scottish system's website, albeit I had to search for my login details, which oddly weren't in any kind of confirmation email. But the English website had stopped issuing them. And not having a GP in England meant I couldn't download and use the NHS app to get them. I did eventually manage to find a way through, but it was a very last minute thing involving actually recording a video of my face and sending it to a particular app. But I got confirmation around 10pm on the Friday evening. Except that we weren't flying to France, we were flying into Switzerland, which had no such regulations or requirements. We flew into Geneva. It was the nearest convenient airport to Annecy. And this, of course, meant we'd been entering France overland. And even though the two countries are in the Schengen travel zone, Switzerland is not in the European Union, and therefore we imagined there'd be some kind of customs check at the border where they'd also check our certifications. Listener, 
There was not, and they did not. We breezed into France on the local train service without any admin at all, making the whole chaos and stress of getting vaccination confirmation almost completely pointless. Well, beyond a, well, I've got it now, so it might come useful in the future kind of thing. As for COVID itself, well, honestly, you'd be forgiven for thinking that it wasn't a thing. We saw a handful of people wearing masks, even in the outdoors, but for the most part, everyone was unmasked and life seemed to be living as if it were 2019. The cafes and restaurants had moments where they were absolutely rammed, doubly so in Paris during a large thunderstorm, and there was absolutely no concept of social distancing anywhere, except possibly, as noted, in hotel occupancy. A couple of the smaller shops, well, boulangeries, actively restricted entry to prevent overcrowding, which caused a couple of unexpected queues, but other than that, it was people everywhere. It must be said, boulangeries made up the vast majority of places we ate at, or at least from. It felt almost like we had a quest to find the best baguette, and while a couple of them were quite average, there were a couple of places we went to that were pretty top-notch, which you could tell just by looking at the bread and how it was both coloured and ribbed. I realised that makes them sound like a condom, especially if I told you I had one that was salami and another that was ham and cheese. But I'm not the right person to do that, for semi-obvious reasons. All that being said, I do write... That's a whole nother story. Come on, Nell, focus. It tended to be where we grabbed a mid-morning breakfast, or occasionally lunch. We'd take the baguette, some kind of pastry and or a sweet thing. I tended to go with the pan au chocolat, the muffin, or the apple tart pastry lattice type thing. One thing that Laura has said previously, and which I can't help but think about every time I make a sandwich back home, is that British bread isn't very good. For one thing, our sliced bread is remarkably thin. I mean, yes, we have loaves that go up to super toasty size, but even those aren't that thick if you look at them. And even as low as medium sliced, the standard thickness of bread, you barely have to scrape something hard across them and they fall apart. And our baguettes and the like aren't just very interesting. They're quite plain, they're quite boring, they're a bit too soft. The French may have some slightly odd tastes in food, but they make the best bread in the world. Laura's other obsession is kebab. And apparently, and this is also bread-related, you can't get decent kebabs in the UK. The difference between a Greek, a Cypriot, a Turkish and a more Levantine kebab is not something entirely clear to me, but her main irk is the way most UK kebabs are served on pita bread rather than on a wrap, which, to be honest, is quite valid. I've always found pita too thin and tended to disintegrate under the sauce. Conversely, there have been a few takeaways near where I've lived which do kebabs on naan, which I love because they're thick and coherent. But Laura tells me she finds these too thick. What can I say? I like something thick between my teeth. I really need some kind of sound effect whenever I say things like that. Anyway, we had kebab a couple of nights. Once in Arnesey because she really fancied one, and then once on our first night in Leon uh, because it was open. A couple of blocks from the hotel was a small area with several restaurants listed on Google Maps. So after going to a nearby pub for more drinks than we anticipated, we set out to go to one of these restaurants, a Vietnamese place that sounded good from the reviews. Which, uh, well, it wasn't even that it was closed, it was that it didn't exist. The small row of shops was derelict, save what I think was a board game cafe. And there was no evidence at all that anything else had been there for quite some time. The other restaurants in the area didn't fill us with any real joy or inspiration, and we almost ended up with McDonald's until we came upon the kebab place. We did have Vietnamese a couple of nights later, on our first night in Paris. 
because it was open. We also failed to find a decent mug of hot chocolate. What we wanted was one of those really thick ones, you know, the ones that are made mainly of cream and with melted chocolate in that you can kind of stick a piece of bread in, it just stands up straight. But all the ones we found were just the standard, typical milky ones that we can get in the UK. Partly this was down to us not really knowing what to look for on the menus. We didn't know if they had a special name or not. There were two notable local influenced evening meals we had on our trip. On our other night in Lyon, we'd been advised to find a bouchon, a kind of cafe restaurant that's typical of the Lyon area that serves up regional cuisine. This is generally described as hearty, bordering on you might want to abandon your diet plan for a bit. The ones we came across in the old town, whether our legion, because it's a very touristy thing to do, were all quite much of a muchness, but we found one nearer to the city centre that seemed all right. We had the cheapest of the menu du jour options that were on offer, but it did give us a three-course meal. And when my starter of salad lyonnaise, which was mainly lettuce and bacon lardons, but with a poached egg on top, for reasons presumably, arrived, we realised it was a good decision. It was huge! Laura was also more than happy with her French onion soup. And despite the portion size, it was pretty good and easy to eat. Only Laura's dessert of cheese stumped her, and that was more because it was incredibly rich cream-like cheese that took a lot of eating. And all for €21 each. The other was in Paris on the Friday night. Having spent two years in Senegal with the Peace Corps several years ago, Laura is very fond of West African food, Senegalese in particular, and it's not something commonly available in the UK. I mean, there's a handful of West African restaurants, even one in Glasgow, which we've been to a couple of times. But they're more Nigerian than Senegalese, and there's a whole world of difference between them. In fact, it's pretty much exactly a thousand miles between their closest points. And this is very similar to the distance between UK and Tunisia, which are also very different and have very different food. Anyway, it took a while of walking to find one that was, you know, open, not too full and which looked okay. But we ended up going to one on the very far side of Gardenau, called Chezena. It was a very small place, about the size of someone's front room, but still stacked with chairs and tables. It wasn't the sort of place you'd see tourists. We clearly stood out. The menu here was small and it changed daily, albeit with similar themes, so one option just substituted meat and fish in alternate days. We shared two meals, marfe, which is peanut stew, with rice, and cherry, millet couscous, with some kind of meat, didn't ask. And the portions were huge and pretty tasty. I've had similar things to marfe before, but cherry was new to me. It's a different kind of couscous to that which I survived on my hike across Great Britain. Imagine the difference in taste and texture between white rice and brown rice. It's that same kind of comparison. We had the same stuff for dessert mixed in with yoghurt, chakari, which was nice and soothing after the very hot pepper sauce I added. Just a little bit too much off to the main course. We had a Senegalese drink too, bisab, a fruity drink made from what I believe are hibiscus leaves. Laura said it was good, but not as good as some of the food she'd had in Senegal. I have nothing to compare it to directly. The peanut stew sauce arachide I had in Benin was of a different style and texture, so I enjoyed it. We did not eat in the hotels we stayed in, because, you know, this is France. Decent bakeries for breakfast were which you've already seen. Literally right there! As previously mentioned, we had trouble finding accommodation on this trip. 
Partly this was due to a lack of hotels, but it was also down to a lack of available twin-bedded rooms. We both noticed the tendency for a lot of places, regardless of whether they were available or not, to only have the facility for double-bedded rooms rather than twin-bedded ones. Me and Laura love each other very much, but not in that way. We're happy to share a room, but we're more than glad of the privacy and comfort provided by our own separate beds. Besides, apparently I fart too much. I don't think I farted that much on this trip, for the record, but only she can answer that. Laura sourced the first two hotels. In Annecy, we stayed in a Campanile, French hotel chain I'd heard of and even stayed in in the past. Somewhere, don't know where, possibly Paris, or Amsterdam, of all places. Anyway, this hotel was very close to Annecy railway and bus stations, which was pretty convenient, as it meant it was easy to find. Surprisingly, not very noisy, despite the central location, too. There was a slight snag at the start, as, despite affirming the room had twin beds, it did not but we were quickly given an alternative room just down the corridor, an indication that perhaps the hotel wasn't quite as full as it seemed. It was a comfortable room, although it did get slightly too warm one of the nights. We were there for three. It had a separate bathroom with toilet and a decent enough amount of space to store everything. It also had convenient power sockets by the beds, something the other two hotels, for different reasons, did not. So, Convenient, spacious and with privacy. Everything the hotel in Lyon was not. Actually, that's a bit harsh. This was the second place that Laura had booked, originally because she was expecting to be on her own and she wanted somewhere cheap. My coming with her meant she thought she could rebook somewhere more affluent, except the terms and conditions of the hotel, meant she couldn't cancel her original booking. So, we were in an Ibis budget, a little out of town. We actually passed it on the coach on the way in. It's a place off the main highway near one of the sports stadia and a block or so from the end of one of the tram lines. Not really walkable from the centre of town. We were tempted, but on our arrival, there was a relatively heavy rain shower. I've stayed in Ibis budgets before, and this was typical of its type. It's one level above the old Hotel Formula One chain, which was basically a concrete block filled with primary coloured solid plastic and with communal bathrooms and toilets but the one in Coventry was £30 a night, so you know, you get what you care for. This hotel at least had a bathroom inside the room, well, a shower room anyway, and two beds, a double bed and a bunk bed across and above it. Let's talk about the washing facilities first. The shower room was just that, a shower, which was fine, except for reasons known only to the interior designers, the door had an artistic circular hole in it. Not to worry, the hole only looked out onto the opposing wall, except that in that exact location was a mirror. We ended up covering the mirror with a towel when we showered. Secondly, the wash basin was located outside the door of the shower room. This meant not only was it ill-advised to use it when someone was having a shower, it also meant that anything we did in the wash basin was visible and audible to the rest of the room. One of my weird social anxieties is I don't like people watching or hearing, though there's not a lot I can do about that, me brush my teeth. So the combination of the two meant I didn't at all during my time in Lyon. That weird irk is something even Laura didn't know about me. So, uh, hi, now you know. The room was quite large, but much of that was spare space by the door on the other side of the toilet. Convenient for getting changed in a secluded place, but meant much of the room's area was, was kind of wasted. In addition, we only found three power sockets. One by the wash basin of all places, one by the bottom of the ladder going up to the bunk, and one not as conveniently located for the table as you might hope. We managed, but it wasn't ideal. Then there's the question of its location. 
Not only was it out of town, it also really wasn't anywhere in particular. As I say, a couple of blocks away were a few dodgy restaurants, some closed, and a large pub. But around the hotel itself was nothing but an industrial business park, a McDonald's and the commercial port. All jolly pretty, and not really much use when you're, you know, looking for something to eat upon your arrival. The pub was cool, though. Happy hour was three hours long and sold pints of beer for five euros. We took full advantage. Our final hotel was another Campanile. You already know it wasn't in Paris. The border with Saint-Saint-Denis was maybe 500 metres west. It had a very similar room to the one in Annecy, though it just felt smaller, and it didn't have a working aircon unit. As opposed to Annecy, which may well have done, we just didn't try and use it. Once again, check-in didn't run smoothly, despite arriving over an hour after check-in opened. On our arrival, the room we were allocated in was still being cleaned, so we waited around a bit, but when the head facilities person turned up, she had us transferred to the room opposite to save us waiting any longer. Again, this suggests the lack of accommodation option was more a deliberate choice by hotels rather than absolute pundit demand. That we were so far out didn't feel as much of an issue as I'd feared, given its location within staggering distance of a metro stop, and we were always going to be out wandering the city anyway. Plus, the line we were on went through enough convenient metro hubs that we could just easily catch it to somewhere central and walk on. And this was usually Metro Republique. The smaller space in the room meant it felt a bit more cramped. I ended up storing some of the stuff under my bed. In addition, the location of the power sockets and bedside light switches behind the tops of the beds made perfect sense when the cleaning staff insisted on pushing them together during every daily clean. But if we'd wanted to sleep together, we'd have got a double bed, so when we pulled them apart, they were impossible to access. Bad design. That I spent my final night in Paris in that same hotel, the Sunday night, once Laura had gone, was because I'd booked my flight for the Monday evening, as I said, for cost reasons. What I hadn't factored in was that the Monday was a public holiday. Whitson, so a lot of things were closed, as they were on the Sunday, because it's Sunday. And travel on that Monday domestically in France looked like it was going to be a bit more expensive. Trains between Paris and Rouen, for instance, were maybe three times more expensive on the Monday than the Sunday. So I decided to stay in Paris both days and just rest. And that this was easy to do, again suggests the lack of hotel space when we came to book was a supply-side issue, not a demand-related issue. Travel itself was an important aspect to the trip, as you'd expect from going to three cities in a foreign country. For me, it started with the flight to Switzerland. Well, I mean, it actually started with the bus from Glasgow to Edinburgh Airport, but that's not a terribly interesting journey. Although I'd flown during the pandemic, including pretty much exactly a year earlier, those flights had been domestic and hadn't required any preparation or research. The other aspect to my journey was that it was the first time I was going into and out of a European area destination without being a citizen of a European Union state. So it was all about the other channels. In addition, and tangentially related to this, there were also contemporary reports of long delays at airports and regular flight cancellations. As a result, even though I checked in online and was only carrying hand luggage, I made sure to arrive at the airports early, an hour and a half at Edinburgh and a full two hours at Paris Orly. As it turned out, this was overkill. My flight to Geneva was late leaving due to air traffic control having fewer staff than normal, but this didn't cause any issues getting through security or anything like that. That side of things was pretty quick. Same with arriving in Geneva, where I was processed and stamped in a few minutes. The walk from the gate to passport control took longer than actually going through it. As an aside, being stamped into the EU means I might actually get to fill my passport before it expires in August 2024. 
In addition, my flight was on EasyJet, who over that weekend were notably having hundreds of cancelled flights, but evidently not mine. And not Laura's either. Laura's flight, also on EasyJet, was an hour late arriving, but that just meant I had time to lurk in Geneva Airport and read a book. As for leaving Orly, again there were no issues at all, no real queuing, no awkward admin issues. Everything felt quick and efficient. Plus, my plane was entirely on time. Maybe I was just lucky, especially given all those tales that have been in the news of late. My flight back was on an airline I'd never flown before, Transavia, who seemed to be mainly a domestic French airline. And that showed with the aircrew on board where I seemed to gather their French announcements better than their English ones. The only issue I had was remarkably back in Glasgow when the automatic gate you can use to scan your passport and have the screen auto-identify your face didn't. So I had to slide to a human immigration official. This is not the first time this has happened trying to get back into the UK. I know my passport photo is from 2013, but really, dude. Overland transportation was mainly by coach with a couple of trains. Our first trip was the first of those trains from Geneva Airport to Annecy, as it was the most regular and convenient routing between the two cities. It's not a long journey, a couple of hours including changing trains in Geneva city centre itself, though if you look on a map it's a bit of a weird routing. Our only problem was buying the tickets from the ticket machine. It didn't accept bank cards so we had to pay in cash. We only had a small number of euros and it wouldn't accept euro coins, only Swiss franc ones, so we had to overpay and we got our change in Swiss francs, which not the most useful of currencies to get coins in when you're only going to be in the country for effectively a few minutes. Vaguely annoying. The route itself though was pretty, as once it left the Geneva suburbs it went through the green fields and small villages, and with the Alps as a constant background entity, that made this region seem very sound of musicy. Obviously we were on the wrong side of the train for the best views, and we even swapped seats halfway which made exactly no difference, but it was a lovely ride in. The two long journeys we made in the week though were both by coach, Flixbus to be precise. These were because uh, they were cheap. The journey from Ancy to Lyon took about the same as the equivalent train, albeit about a quarter of the time we spent on the coach was in the Lyon suburbs stuck in traffic. The one from Lyon to Paris took about five hours. The train would take two, but then the coach was £14 and the train was about 50 so you know, you get what you pay for. And both coaches were fairly full. The one from Lyon to Paris was completely so, and it turns out this was just one leg of a much longer journey. It had started beyond Barcelona. I'm not sure what kind of budget backpacker would choose to take a Flixbus from Barcelona to Paris via Lyon. Well, actually I do know because it's certainly something I'd be tempted with. But experience has shown longer night journeys like that do not do well on my body or my mental health. We actually almost didn't make that coach. We left our hotel a little later than we should have done and the tram we caught to the city centre broke down on the way. Fortunately, close enough for us to walk to the bus station from. And then in the bus station there was no indication which bay our coach was departing from, so we lurked around by the wrong one for a few minutes. Coach stations in France seemed to be quite unhelpful on that score, as Laura had a similar problem on her coach from Paris back to London on the last Sunday. She'd already had a notification a few days earlier that it had been retimed and was now running two hours later than scheduled. And then when we got to Bercy bus station, which not the prettiest place in the world, even by bus station standards, probably on a par with the old one at Digbeth in Birmingham, her coach wasn't listed at all on the departure screens, so she ended up having to ask for confirmation at the help desk. The only help desk, incidentally, I've ever seen, with a security guard at the door checking people who wanted to go in to ask for info. I have 
no idea why. Her adventures didn't end there. For some reason, her coach took a ferry, rather than the Eurotunnel, but arrived in Calais just after one had stopped boarding, so she had to wait there for the next two hours. She was worried she'd missed the last tube home from London Victoria, but they arrived just after 10pm. As mentioned, the hotel we stayed in Paris wasn't actually in Paris, but just outside the border, and it was within staggering distance of a metro stop, so we used the Paris metro system quite a lot. There's not much to say about it, really, that hasn't already been said. My personal lurk about it is, because most of the stops are named after the roads that they're on, which are mostly named after famous people, or other famous places, or indeed named directly after those famous people or famous places, with regardless of what road they're on, the metro system gives no way of determining really where in Paris you are. I had no idea who Jacques Bonsejean was until I was writing this podcast. An engineer who was the first execution of a French citizen by the Nazis, seemingly inconsequentially, apparently. But we used his station because it turns out it was in a convenient place. Who knew? The other observation I had is, we got a couple of late evening metros, and even out to the suburbs they were busy. I don't think we ever managed to get a seat on the Line 5, no matter how late in the day it was. Obviously, there are knock-on effects there with regards to Covid precautions, but I've already talked about that. Paris also has a tram network. I didn't actually realise this until this visit, regardless of the number of times I'd been there before. Although I guess that's partly because all the Parisian trams are in the suburbs, on the very edge of the city boundary, in fact. But I travelled on one to the airport. Normally I'd get one of the Orly coaches from a convenient south of the river metro stop, probably Denfer Rochereau, named after an army general in the days of the Franco-Prussian War, which cost, I don't know, additional nine euros or something. But it turns out you can get to Orly Airport on standard local tickets. My research has revealed the transfer I did from metro to tram at Villejuif Louis Aragon was technically illegal, as you're not supposed to transfer onto the same ticket like that. But no one checked, so I did the journey for one euro sixty as opposed to double that. Obviously, taking this route is longer and slower than getting the bus, but as you can see, even doing it legally, it's still substantially cheaper. And you get the glorious views of uh, a large new commercial business park at Rungis, and the largest wholesale food market in Europe. Exciting places. The other trip me and Laura did together was a day trip on a regional train up to the small town of Vernon in Normandy on the last Saturday we were there. I worked out how to get there, but didn't buy any tickets in advance, because, well, me. Which caused issues when we rocked up to Saint-Lazare railway station and found we couldn't buy the tickets for the train we wanted, uh, because it had sold out. This irked and confused me, because it's not like you could book seats on it anyway. Laura was gentle with me, but I still felt like a bit of a failure. We could get on the following train about 45 minutes later, which, it turns out, was absolutely rammed with people. Getting back was fun, but in a different way. Despite being glorious sunshine for the whole day, we popped into a supermarket to get water on the way back and came out to moody grey skies. The train was far less crowded and we could actually look out the window at the passing scenery and the many bridges over the Seine as we followed the river back to Paris. But in the suburbs, we were treated to a huge storm with heavy rain and big lightning flashes. The storm was so bad the train stopped for ten minutes or so because the electrics on the line had failed due to so much water falling. You've probably never heard of Vernon. I'd never heard of Vernon until I did pre-trip research. But let's talk about why we were there and what else we did on the trip. And in saying that, I'm fully aware that I've got this far through the pod 
and not really even said much about what we actually did. So let's change that. So let's start almost at the end on our last full day together when we went to Vernon. In truth, Vernon was not our destination. While it itself is quite a pretty town with old buildings, cobbled streets, a big church and a ruined castle, for our purposes it served mainly as a transport stop for an onward five-kilometre journey to the even smaller village of Giverny. This is famous for being a spot where creatives tended to congregate towards the end of the 19th century in order to find peace, beauty and inspiration. One of the first, and pretty much the most famous, was a chap you may have heard of called Claude Monet. You know, the Impressionist painter. Did that painting of a bridge over a pond with water lilies. His house in Giverny is now a museum, covering both the building itself and the surrounding gardens. Given it was a Saturday, and during the hours we visited anyway, blue skies, blazing sunshine, the place was absolutely crowded with other tourists, but that didn't detract as much from the experience as you might imagine. I'm going to divide this into three parts, the house, the gardens, and the pond. The house is weird. It's a two-storey building with several small rooms, each of which is decorated roughly how it would have been during Monet's residence. You get to see, for example, his bed, his kitchen, mostly blue, his dining room, mostly yellow, his inspirations, the walls are covered in Japanese art from one or two centuries prior to him, and many everyday household items of the kind he would have used, as well as, obviously, lots of his paintings, or at least those in his style. What you don't get is much in the way of explanation as to what you're actually looking at. And so, given the sheer numbers of other people in the place at the time, it felt a bit like looking around someone else's house, like one of those show homes, at relative speed, without knowing or understanding really what you're looking at. Pretty, certainly, just a trifle odd, and without context. The gardens out with the house are bright, colourful, and essentially divided into grid lines. I know very little about flowers. What I can tell you is there's a series of straight paths going through them and you definitely feel like you're invading nature's space rather than being central and nature serving you. They're quite extensive, although most of it you're not allowed to enter, just view from the edge. It's all very green and quite high and of course lots of pollinating insects. Little tip, and don't go there wearing a yellow t-shirt under red dungarees. My otherwise traffic light vibe made me very much resemble a flower myself. Off the garden was a path that went under the main road and into a different section of the grounds. This was more serene and felt wilder, with flowing paths through wide and drooping trees that ran around a couple of large ponds or small lakes, not quite sure where the boundary line is. It is, of course, these lakes that form the backdrop for his famous water lilies paintings. He evidently liked water lilies, as he painted them over 250 times. My personal observation about this is I can only presume there is a distinct water lily season. Although it's clear exactly where and what he drew and painted, there was a definite and distinct lack of water lilies in the ponds on our visits. Maybe they're scared of tourists. The rest of Giovanni isn't very big, but it is very pretty, with cottages standing behind trees on what would normally be quiet and unassuming roads. It's linked to Vernon by a country lane, or, if you fancy it, and we did, a combination of the weather being good and the shuttle bus back to Vernon only running every two hours, a dead railway line that has been turned into a footpath and cycle path. It felt very much like we were in the countryside, like England, but hotter and with sharper cliffs rather than rolling hills. Hills, well, mountains, were the background to our time in Honesty, although we never went up any. Rather, it was just nice to appreciate them at distance from ground level. Or from 448 metres, I believe, one of the cafes in the town identified itself as. 
Although not a very big place, Honesty is very pretty and walking its streets is very rewarding, as long as you do it slowly and take in every building, every vista. It's dominated by an old town, a series of streets with cobbled pavements, cafes at every corner, and a series of canals and waterways that feed into the nearby Lake Honesty. For UK listeners, it's twice as big as Windermere, and marginally larger than Loch Morat and Loch Tay. Or half as big as Loch Ness, albeit a very different shape. There's plenty you can do in Honesty, but we did very little of it. We did not hire a pedalo for an hour on the water. We did not hire a bicycle to go riding around the lake, although Laura would have done had we stayed an extra day. And nor did we climb any mountains. On one of the days we were there, we noted there was an ultramarathon competition going on, the longest of which was 88 kilometres and saw a total ascent of 5,000 metres. The winner of the male race finished in 8 hours 44 minutes to 46 seconds, the winning female in 11 hours 21.54. The winning men's time works out at 29 minutes 48 per parkrun, a speed I can just about do on one running of my local parkrun, which, even if I did it 17 times, still wouldn't give me an elevation of 5,000 metres. That would require a gain of 95 metres per lap, which I know my local parkrun is hilly, but it's clearly not that hilly. What we did do is walk around the town, walk around the lake, and on the first Sunday we were there, get sunburn because it was bright and sunny. And the redness stayed with us for the whole of the trip. That's what you get for wearing a crop top, I guess. I guess the main thing about our visit there was just being there. It's the sort of place you see on Instagram, and with good reason. The buildings are old, and while not impressive so much, they have a lot of character and they work very well on photographs. The streets are very... French. Very charming, and there's a lot going on. On the Tuesday morning, there's a large market occupying what felt like half the old town centre. The lakefront is bordered by a footway in a large parkland area with trees and sculptures, including an odd and over-elaborate small sundial. And of course, the views out over the lake and to the mountains beyond are just stunning in themselves. Lyon didn't have the mountainous setting, and of course it's a much bigger city. The jury is still out on whether it's the second or third biggest city in France, but it was still prettier than you might imagine. It's not a city I knew at all, having only ever been there once to change trains, ironically to reach Geneva, and I'd never set foot outside Part D railway station. Laura had been told it was a really exciting and pretty place. As this is a podcast, you can't see the interrobang I've written into the transcript notes, but be definitely aware it's there. But initial impressions weren't favourable. Our coach arrived at the Perash station, which is a huge complex that's almost impossible to get round without going through, and not the prettiest place this side of the Rhone River. And the journey to the hotel equally didn't fill us with excitement. But, 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 but then came the next morning, and even the tram ride northeast of Perash looked hopeful. Some cities have better riverfronts than others. I disagree with Laura on the vibe of Glasgow's, though I can see there are prettier ones, but Leon has two. Either side of the effective city centre are the Rhone and Seine rivers, creating a kind of small peninsula lined with vibrant old buildings that make you want to stand on the bridges and just watch a while. Whisper it quietly, but I preferred the view from the Seine to that on the Seine in Paris, but we'll come on to that later. To the west of the Seine, though, is Leon's old town, which had been widely lauded by Laura's friends. Not going to lie, I expected it to be two short streets surrounded by modern construction. I expected Leon to be a bit like Birmingham, but with less spicy food. Lessener, it most certainly was not like Birmingham. I'm not going to compare it to Ansi, as the two are very different in terms of layout and setting, but Leon's old town is possibly of similar size. 
It's filled with cobbled narrow streets, lined with old buildings and rather more horologies or clockmakers than you might expect. Although, to be honest, even one would have been more than I'd have expected. And the occasional large church. Because France. Although the Cathedral Saint-Jean-Baptiste is definitely worth popping into, it's got some lovely stained glass window panelling, for instance, as well as a small museum dedicated to... Well, it's called the Treasury Museum, but it contains things like vestments and excessively ornate incense burners and crosses from the Middle Ages. Also in the old town is the Museum of Lyon's history, a very... It's housed in an old building with ornate furnishing and ceiling design, and the actual structure of the museum is perfectly ordinary. It's just... peculiar. The very start of the museum has some interactive displays on things Lyon is famous for, including the football team and guignol, or dolls, well, puppets, really, uh, before it has a level all about a very brief overview of Lyon's history. The signage then suggests that's the end of the museum, and what's left is a bit about the waterways around Lyon, mostly designed for children, and a signpost to a cafe and a lookout spot. We found neither of these. Rather, what we did find were a further 20-something rooms going into great detail about different aspects of Lyon, including its history of socialist activism, the city's expansion and development in the face of flooding, industrial development, and, for some reason, Napoleon Bonaparte's bed. I'm sure the museum had a structure and a theme, but we were at a loss to quite understand it. Very informative, but also very confusing. It must be said, though, calling the area the Old Town is a bit of a misnomer. I mean, sure it's old, but... Just to the west of it is a hill called Fourvière. It's quite a steep hill, and we walked to the top through a quite a nice rosary garden to get there, waving at statues of your man Jesus as we passed. At the top, and just behind the imposing basilisk of... Notre Dame, is what remains of Roman Lugdunum, pretty much the original city here and from which the rest of Lyon grew. Founded in 43 BC but based around a previously existing Gaulish settlement, in European terms you don't get much older than this, unless you start going into places like Malta and Turkey with really ancient civilizations. There's a museum here that goes into part of the history of the city, but mainly it's an excuse to wheel out sarcophagi of dead Romans and their servants, statues and the plinths on which statues once stood, and huge mosaics that, because they've been buried underground for the best part of 1500 years, are rather well preserved. Outside the museum are two Roman amphitheatres, both also quite nicely preserved, and some extensive ruins that at the time would have made up the surrounding streets. One of the amphitheatres is still in use today. On our visit there was a modern stage with lighting rigs and amplifiers set up and techies were doing one heck of a sound check, whilst other techies mingled with tourists sitting on the same stone laid out two millennia area for Roman audiences to watch their equivalents perform live. Though perhaps not quite as loudly. From both here and the top of the Fourvier Hill you get a good view over the city skyline of Lyon, which is remarkably low rise apart from five or six skyscrapers that look very much out of place. You're also supposed to be able to see Mont Blanc and the Alps in the distance, although even though by the time we got up there the rain had stopped and it was becoming quite a nice day, the air was still heavy with mist and haze, so anything beyond the city limits was just a vague sweep of shades of white. I mean, it could have been worse. My experience of hill climbs rarely ended in any views at all. The city centre itself has a long, wide shopping street called Rue de la République, which Google Maps informed us at the time is a UNESCO-protected shopping street, though I honestly couldn't tell you why. It was, though, definitely more aesthetic than Birmingham's New Street and Corporation Street, and even had a pleasant square in the middle with a large shallow pool, complete without a dodgy sculpture in the middle of it. One day I ought to blog and pod about Birmingham the Black Country.
might be fun. But that was Leon, more pleasant than Laura was expecting. Obviously, there's not a lot I can say about the last place we stayed in. Everyone knows about Paris, right? Well, I mean, obviously, just like London, there's a whole expanse of even the city itself that tourists rarely venture, never mind the near suburbs. But Paris is one of Laura's favourite cities in the world, and what she most likes to do there is wander around the streets and take photographs of the architecture. And Paris certainly has a wonderful and aesthetic architecture. Along some streets, even the most mundane of buildings carries off a certain character and vibe. Her second favourite structure to look at, though, is the Eiffel Tower. When we'd last visited back in May 2018, we sat down on the nearby Champ de Mars and looked at it for about an hour and a half. The floor was too wet to do that this time, so we made do by wandering the streets nearby and taking pictures from the bridges over the Seine. And this here, this is what we got me pondering. Cities with rivers. Taking a purely independent approach to this, objectively, the Seine isn't very big and there's a huge number of bridges over it. This makes the river quite accessible, especially as there are riverside paths you can walk along at your leisure. And it means it's quite easy to get a riverside view. But the river itself? Whisper it quietly. But it's not that interesting. Not as compared with, say, the Thames or the Douro. And while there's not a lot of difference between it and the Rhone, as I say, Lyon is blessed with a similar-sized stone, so you get two rivers from the price of one. I mean, that said, Paris has more vibe than, say, the Trent through Nottingham, and the oft-derided Birmingham may well be the biggest city I've been to not to stand on either a river or a lake or a sea. I am aware of the existence of the River Ray, but any river I can more or less jump over, when I can see it at all and it's not being built over, doesn't count. The other thing about Paris, and this was something that Laura had pointed out as well, is that when you compare it to London... London has a lot of very definitive different areas, different districts that have their own vibe. You know where you are in London. If you are teleported to somewhere and look around, you pretty much know which part of London you're in. The trouble with Paris is it's very pretty, but a lot of it looks the same. There's no distinguishing feature that, for example, would indicate whether you're in Menilmontant in the east or Autai in the west. It all kind of looks the same. Anyway, Paris... One thing the city has that I didn't realise until we walked past it is a kind of equivalent to New York's High Line, and indeed was created much earlier than it. It's a dead railway line, funny how I always find these things, closed in 1969 that ran from Bastille in the east of city centre to the town of Lavrain-Saint-Meur in the eastern suburbs. Just under five kilometres of the track has been turned into a cycle path and footpath. At one end, just north of Domenil, it runs through a woodland grove area that feels completely at odds with the surroundings before entering a wide tunnel under Rue de Roy, which is lined with artwork and some sculptures. Much of the west of the route towards Bastille then rises onto a viaduct, running alongside Avenue Domenil, with views across the roads to the architecture and the occasional piece of artwork and small garden area. It's even called the Promenade Plante, tree-lined walkway, and the viaduct is called the Viaduct des Arts. Very pretty, and much easier than walking at ground level. At the other end of the scale, at Laura's suggestion... We took a short gander at the Palais Garmier, a 19th century Italian-style opera house. They do still perform opera here, although it's more likely if you're going to watch opera you'll do it at the Opera Bastille, built on the site of the railway station the Promenade Plante would have ended up at when it was a railway line. And the Palais Garnier, however, well it's definitely a building for sure. There's not much of it you can actually explore as a tourist, the main entranceway and staircase and the long corridor on the upper level. But you can also stand on the balconies and look out over the city, and pretend to be, I don't know, a monarch or something waving to the tourists below. 
You can also pop into one of the seated boxes in the auditorium and see the main seating, the stage, the curtains. If all that doesn't sound terribly interesting, be aware that podcasting is an audio medium and the Palais Garnier isn't. I mean, obviously opera itself is, but we were there to look at the building rather than the people performing in it. It is, quite possibly, the most opulent building I've ever been inside. And I've been to a good many Catholic cathedrals where it's clear what they spent their tithes and tax breaks on. Everything is gold. There are thick, shiny columns built on ornate plinths, rising to ceilings way taller than my flat in Glasgow. From the ceilings come huge chandeliers, which, even though lit with small bulbs rather than candles, still provide appropriate gravitas. The walls are covered with decorative motifs, panelling, artwork, all in yellows and oranges. The doorways and the landing overlooking the stairwell are wide, tall arches that let huge amounts of light and air through. And the ceilings, oh my God, the ceilings wouldn't look out of place in the Vatican, with delicately painted scenes bordered by gold frills and floral decor. It is quite stunning to walk through. The other major place I went to was on my last day. As I say, my original plan had been to leave Paris on the Sunday and go to somewhere else like Rouen or Reims or Versailles even, but that proved too awkward logistically, so as I say, I just rested in Paris. On the Monday, my flight was about quarter to six in the evening, which meant I had a casual and easy day to wander down to Orly. I was tempted to walk the whole journey, it's only about 21 kilometres, and I always find there's something illicitly exciting about walking to or from an airport. But as it happens, I got distracted on my way there and ended up getting the equally illicit, albeit for different reasons, metro-tram combo. What I got distracted by was a graveyard. The Père Lachaise Cemetery was conveniently close to the hotel on the way south, so I thought I'd pop in for a few minutes and have a look around. I ended up in there for about two and a half hours, partly going, where the feck is this grave, why can't I find it? And also partly going, just one more, just one more, it's on the way and ooh, shiny. In case you don't know, it's the largest cemetery in France, 44 hectares, where a hectare is about the size of a rugby pitch, or Trafalgar Square, and contains upwards of a million dead people. Insert joke about Birmingham here. That's not to say a million gravestones or monuments, since many graves themselves have more than one person in, and there are quite a few lot of mausoleums and family plots. This actually makes the site much prettier than you might imagine, since the pathways through are generally wide cobbled streets, and even given road names, often lined with the larger memorials, some of which resemble the Doctor's TARDIS. There's also lots of overhanging trees, and everything comes together to give a calming, restful, low-key vibe. Well, until you reach one of the more popular graves, like Oscar Wilde, Jim Morrison, or on my visit at least, the most popular was Edith Piaf. Obviously, many of the more notable people had distinct memorials, but the majority of graves were fairly unique, or at least distinctive, with different designs, little touches like pieces of artwork on top, or carved busts of the people buried, or some kind of representation of what that person did. One early motor racing driver had a bust of him holding a steering wheel, for instance. In addition, the gravestones are often flat rather than upright and squashed very close together. It's a far cry from typical graveyards in the UK, where all the graves are marked with more or less uniform stones pointing upright from the grass in well-defined rows. Our graveyards are pretty boring. What's strange is that I visited Perlachais once before, in very similar circumstances. It was a Sunday rather than a bank holiday Monday, but still a day when things were largely closed, and it was a day when I had a plane to catch that evening from Orly Airport, and figured that Perlachais was a great way to spend some easy time. And it, it's true in a way, because all you're doing is wandering around a graveyard. You're, you're not pushed for time, you're not stressed, you're not, it's quite a pleasant place to be, even with a backpack. Uh, it's comfortable, it's, it's, it's calming, 
and it it's open. That's the main thing about it. it. It's actually open on a day when everything else is closed, which helps. So what did I learn from my trip to France? Sometimes it's great fun to travel with people as you get to visit places you may never have thought of yourself. Doing things at the last minute isn't always beneficial, but in general terms, things tend to work out well in the end. Gregs would have to change quite a bit if they wanted a foothold in France. And if you take everyday people as a guide, the Covid pandemic is believed to be over. And don't trust Google Maps to find your restaurants. At least, not ones that exist. Well, that's about all for this pod. Join me next time for, well, I mean, it's Pride Month, so I'm going to be talking again about the crossover between LGBTQIA plus and travel. And let me tell you now, it's not going to be pretty. Even less pretty than the thought of me in a crop top. Until then, faut jamais les oublier les trois mots qui terminent en T. You know you listen for the niche content. And if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass Bonus by Kai Angel, which is available by the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. The podcast has a Facebook group at travel.tales.beyond.brochure, and I have a Patreon for access to rare extra content. That's patreon.com slash traveltalesbeyondbrochurepod. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. Thank you.